Welcome to Founder Files, where we talk about what goes into building a nonprofit from the ground up. I'm your host, Jen, founder of Walking with Giants Foundation, here to share my story and the stories of others on this incredible journey. I'm a firm believer in the Rachel Hollis views on goals. You can only really focus on one goal at a time if you're ever going to get anywhere. Granted, I completely understand what it's like to be a one-woman founder, CFO, marketing manager, IT squad, and dog mom. But even so, I like to focus on taking things just one step at a time to make sure that one, I'm paying attention to the details, and two, I'm not just making a 0.5% progress on my goals. It's always great to look around the community for insight and advice from people that understand what it is that you're working towards. On today's show, we're going to be chatting with Alicia Mathis of Mathis Nonprofit Services for a look into her nine-step system for building a nonprofit. Hello and welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So first question in, what inspired your nine-step strategy? Well, I had spent 10 years in the nonprofit world. I've been in administrative development and programs, and I found myself on a new nonprofit board. This was a completely new nonprofit. I was actually the only person on the board that had any nonprofit experience. And so going through that year on the board, I kept seeing all the things that needed to be done. The nine steps was still in my head at that time. And I thought, there has to be an easy way to do this. So I went and Googled, and there was nothing out there that showed any kind of direction. And so that's what inspired me. I sat down and thought, okay, what is the end goal for the first year? And I decided that since funding was such a problem, the end goal should be ready for funding. Then I started thinking, okay, what are the low-cost, no-cost ways to get there. And so with those that criteria in mind, I set out and created the nine steps. Brilliant. And I know it's a little bit of an off-the-cuff question, but I'm also curious to know what got you into nonprofits. Oh, well, there was an ad in the newspaper. <laughs> that's, okay. Um, that's really what, because I never actually considered nonprofit work until I saw the ad and I thought, that's a different idea, you know, working for a cause instead of working for, you know, a, a for-profit business. That That's very interesting. So I applied and I got it. And that was when I was in administrative work. And that was where I really learned about boards and board meetings and board books and all that kind of stuff. All the fun things, of course. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, once you got in and you heard the stories and you you saw the impact that the organization was making in the community around you, that's when it really grabbed my heart and, and the rest is history. Yeah, definitely. I feel like so many people that end up working in nonprofits end up working so hard because they're so passionate about the mission. It's not... It's not the same heart as like a, a typical nine to five. Right. And it, it never is typical. Nonprofit work, you wear, you wear 20 different hats at any given time. Oh, yeah, definitely. You're always asked to do more with less. <laughs> so it's a challenge. And I think that's 
another thing that really drew me was I enjoyed the challenge. I enjoyed figuring out the low cost and the no cost ways to get me where I needed to go. And it, and it led to these great nine steps. So we'll start off with the first one. First step, your board. So we're working on a board. We're thinking about our nonprofit. You know, for those listening that are just really and truly starting off step one, they woke up. I want to start a nonprofit today. (laughs) There's nothing else that's already doing this in my community. There's nowhere where I can already volunteer my time and resources. So I'm going to I'm going to do the thing myself. What is a board? Who is a board? What is your first step? Well, in order to get incorporated and get your 501c3, which is your charitable tax status, you have to have a board at some point. The minimums can depend on your state. I think the IRS requires three board members. And so this the board is your governing body of the nonprofit. When you are brand new, though, you're considered a working board. And a working board is simply those are the people that are going to have to roll up their sleeves and do the, the day-to-day work of the nonprofit until you can hire an executive director to start that level. So yeah, when you're first starting out, you're really looking for for people who are willing to spend 10, 20 hours a month in addition to board meetings on your nonprofit. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense, straightforward. And I'm assuming for the most part, this is usually friends or family with similar interests. Do you find that people find board members elsewhere? Like where would you find or recommend finding people with similar interests? I feel like that can be a little difficult. Yeah. And especially when you're just starting out because you don't have a reputation, people don't know if you're going to hang around and, uh, you know, rolling up your sleeves and putting in that much time into a cause can be something people don't really want to do. So that can be difficult. Of course, as you get further along, it gets a little easier. But as far as finding board members, it's like anything else. You start from within and you work your way out. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, you're going to ask family and, and friends. I would caution family. I have seen a lot of Nonprofits start out with family and things go sour and it it gets bad. Also, there are some states that limit family relations or exclude family relations. So you have to make sure you know what your laws are for your state. Yes, I was just about to say there's usually a limit for how many, if you even have family members, how many family members you can have on a board, even just to start with, even if it's just to get things moving. Right. And so, but you can go to family and say, who do you know that you can introduce me to that might help me? That's one way to get them involved and help um, use their connections because that's really what forming a board is, is your connections. So it's going to be getting out there in the community. If you're involved in church, look in your church. If you're involved in any kind of um, civic organization, look there. Most founders are still working. Look at your coworkers. If you think I might could work with them and they have similar interests, you know, ask. And then if they say no, go a step further and say, who do you know that you could refer me to? You could set that up. And so that's how you make those connections. And really starting out, that's probably your best bet. You can also think a little bit outside the box and on your personal account on on social media, 
put it out there. I'm starting a new nonprofit. I'm looking for board members and see what, what you get. There's also volunteermatch.com that you can put it on that's looking for volunteers. And then if you want to go paid route, you can always do Facebook ads or like Indeed. But I would stay away from the, the paid stuff because I think once you go through the others, you will find enough board members to at least get you started. Brilliant. So we have our board members. What happens now? What is step two? Step two is putting together your strategic plan. And it is not sexy. <laughs> it, it's <laughs> it's um, tough work, but it's very, very needed. Because when you think about your a nonprofit organization, I like the visual of a tree. So the roots of the tree are your mission, vision, and values. Everything comes from your roots. So your mission, your vision, and your values. The trunk of the tree is your strategic plan. And that really focuses the mission, vision, and values into what manifests into the community. So your strategic plan should be, I say three to five years. Grants, though, will ask for a five-year strategic plan if you are really new. So I would say go ahead and do the five-year plan. And you're just going to sit down with your board and say, okay, in five years, where do we want to be? What does the organization look like? And just dream a little. Put it down on paper. And then you, you go and you say, okay, well, we're starting here. So what do we need to do the first year to get to that goal? And then you just keep working your way up to year five. And so at the end of year five, you should have accomplished your vision and your, your goals. Yeah, definitely. And I always like to say it's really, you're really just goal setting at that point and breaking down how do you get there. So we've set, we got our board, we've set our strategic plan into place. We know where we're going. Step three, the fun part, budgets. <laughs> oh, yes, I know, <laughs> budgets. I hate that part. <laughs> uh, but really, a, a new nonprofit's budget is very, very simple. Because you really don't have a whole lot to report. They get complicated as you grow. And at that point, you're probably going to need a CPA. But to start out, it's just income and expenses. And so examples of income would be board dues. I recommend that you put board dues into your bylaws and you, you make the board contribute. And then you have individual donations any event revenue that you may decide to have, your fundraising letter revenue, which in the nonprofit world, that's called appeals. And then, you know, anything else of significant source of revenue, you're going to track that. And if you have any that are coming from like churches or civic groups or any other kind of organization or, or corporation, you'll want a different bucket for that too. And then, of course, any miscellaneous revenue that you may have, interest, income, that kind of thing. So that rounds out your, your income, and then you'll total it. And you're going to have an estimated and an actual columns to your budget. And the first year, it's all estimated because you really don't know until you've had a year or two under your belt really how to budget. So don't let that be a sticking point for you. 
just, you know, do your estimate and, and have that completed. And then you're going to um, go through your expenses. And so some expenses that you'll, you'll probably want to include is any office supplies, any computer software or hardware, your technology, which would be your, your website, your domain, any kind of network you may need, printing, postage, fundraising expenses, your phone, your internet, marketing expenses. You may have some of them. If you have a membership, there may be some expenses dealing with your membership or affiliations. You know, if you are a part of a professional network, you, you'll have dues there too. Insurance. So many people don't do insurance. And I know in the state of Georgia, which is where I am, if you have three people, even if they're volunteer on your board, you are required to have workman's comp insurance. And so many people don't think about that. And so once you've got all your expenses, you total them up and you should be operating on a zero-based budget. So that means that your income and your expenses, which is your net gain or loss, should equal zero. If you wind up with a net gain, you can always go back in your expenses and add in like a savings line. Even though you're a nonprofit, you can have reserve funds um, for rainy days. So you can start doing that. Yes. Smart. Great tip. An amazing tip about the insurance. That's a huge one. I feel like gets really easily overlooked. Yes. People are like, I'm a nonprofit. I don't, I don't need to take care of insurance. Um, there's definitely a lot that goes into what insurance can cover for your organization. You don't want to be personally held responsible for. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and there's like director, DNO, directors and off, officers insurance, which protects the people on your board from any liabilities. But the workman's comp completely blew me away whenever I, I found out about it because I'm like, but there are volunteers, you know, but doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, got to take care of your staff, even if it's volunteer staff. Yeah. So next step, program development. So step number four. So how do you narrow down your programs? I feel like you know, when you open your, your doors to your nonprofit, you're like, great, we're going to do all these 50 things. <laughs> so how do you narrow those down? Well, first of all, your program really needs to align with your mission. So that's, that's the first litmus test for you. Does it align with your mission, your vision, your values? Because if it doesn't, it's going to be all over the place. And when you're first starting out, the first program you put in place is go going to be your signature program. It's going to be what you wind up being known for. So sit back and think, you know, in the next 20 years, is this program what I want to be known for? Yeah, definitely. I know it's also really important to mention when you're developing these programs and putting them down on paper to recognize that, you know, as part of your 501c3, the programs that you're implementing, the time, even the time that you're spending on them gets looked at and they can play a factor in if you lose your 501c3 status, if you're doing something that, you know, someone can look at and say, well, that's not really relevant to what your mission is, to what your organization stated that it wanted to be doing. So also, you know, I like to remind people, be mindful 
about what you're putting down as your programs, that it's something relevant to what you're, you're looking to achieve. Right. And it also has to give some sort of significant value to the community. That's another one of those little um, IRS rules to keep your tax exempt status. So you have to really look to, is this truly going to make an impact on whatever problem I'm wanting to solve. Mm -hmm. And I know you have an amazing blog post to that effect that I'll be adding a link to on our show notes and on our blog as well about developing your program. And I know there's an amazing template on there for those just starting out what how to break that down and what the details should be around it. Yeah. And the template is actually um, built around a grant proposal. So if you go through and you put this down on paper and you implement it in two or three years, once you have some measurable outcomes, you will very easily be able to write a a grant proposal. I love that. And everything that we need in the world of nonprofits, saving time. Yes. (laughs) All right. So speaking of which, we're going into management systems. Step number five. Yes. This is also one of those steps that is not interesting to me at all. <laughs> it's just not, and it's not going to be interesting to a founder or a board member because it's very detailed. It's, you have to think so much sometimes I think your brain starts hurting. Oh yeah, so, definitely. <laughs> trying to figure out all this stuff. So, but it, it is a very, very important piece to your your puzzle because a lot of times later on when you go to look at, at grants they're going to want to see some of these things because I have known funders to ask for some of these documents so it's go it's good to go ahead and put these things in place also this is going to help minimize risk for you for your organization and so go ahead and put the procedure in place That doesn't mean that it may not happen later down the road, but you have a policy to cover how to handle it and what what the outcome should be. So in essence, we're looking at the building policies and procedures for our organization, how you would run things on the day to day, how you handle certain situations. Correct. Right. Policy is a broader document that looks at particular subject matters or topics or issues. And a procedure is going to be a very detailed document. So when I think of a procedure, I think of if I was given this document and I went step one, step two, all the way through, I would be able to complete a task and have it completed the same way every time. So that's how I distinguish between the two. Very smart. So um, some policies that you might think about. Obviously, you want some board-related policies, so you'll want to take some of your things out of your bylaws, like your eligibility, the powers, the duties, the election of officers. That should already be in your bylaws. And then you want a conflict of interest. You want a code of conduct. You want a confidentiality statement because a lot of nonprofits deal with intimate details that you really don't want out in the community. I mean, you, you don't want people to um, that are your clients out in the world and there's no confidentiality. So that's important. You may want to put meeting attendance policy in there. And then two policies that I 
completely recommend is the media public relations and the social media policies because you want to make sure your board members know how to represent the organization when they're out in the world. And so those policies will keep you out of a lot of trouble and it will really give some guidelines to those board members so that they know how to handle themselves out in public. Definitely. And this is about the time where I start looking at also developing the brand guidelines for anybody else that joins a team in the future, that they understand, you know, the general voice of the brand, the expectations as brand ambassadors, which is really what everyone in any organization is. And, you know, what everything means to us moving forward. How do we keep this organization alive and in the culture that you're building? Right. And then under the management, I also put in financial policies, which would be reserves. What's your policy on reserves, on acceptance of gifts? What's your fiscal period? Your um, audits, signing of checks, use of credit cards, requests for checks, all of those financial things that you have to think about. I put into the management part because that's, that's really part of management, So those are the basic policies that I think the first year nonprofit really needs to have. Yeah, definitely. And I know as, you know, you grow your nonprofit, you start looking at adding new policies or mending where needed, but always important to have it from the get-go. Right. And then so then you move into procedures and procedures are really going to depend on your organization and the needs of the organization at the time. One thing I do know a procedure that you, you have to have is how to handle money. So, you know, when someone receives the money, what happens? I mean, do they, because I worked in an organization one time where, and I was in development, and if I was ever given cash or a check or anything, I had to seal it up in an envelope and write on the outside of the envelope how much money was in the envelope. That was a check and balance so then whoever opened that envelope then could check and make sure, and it went on. And I would even go so far as writing out the policy because auditors and the IRS love the policy of one person cannot touch more than one part of, of a money handling process. So, for instance, um, I worked for a larger organization, and um, November and December – it was all hands on deck because 80% of our mail came in those two months, which was, you know, thousands a day. Mm-hmm. And we were accounts um, receivable and donations. So $13 million of the organization came through our hands. And <laughs> so the grant writer and I, our job during those two months was to open the mail, stamp it, and then put it into its pots that it needed to go into. And then once we did that, there was two people that would do data entry. And then there was a third or, yeah, a, another person that would do the deposit. And once you touched one area, you couldn't do any other area. And I don't think a lot of nonprofits, when they start out, realize that that is a procedure. And it doesn't matter if there's two of you or, you know, or 10 of you, if one person touches it, you cannot touch it again. Yeah, definitely. And I know I I threw out the example, you know, even if it's like a smaller donation, you get 
five dollars like there's it's a different person from the opener of that donation to the person that ends up actually depositing that donation just for safety right and it's a checks and balances so that you know money doesn't go missing and it, it really that policy also protects the people that are doing the handling of the money so speaking of money Every nonprofit wants some, but first they need to go through your step six. So finding your ideal donor. So who is that? (laughs) Your ideal donor is the person that you would most likely donate to you. So it's going to take some work. It's going to take some thought because you're going to look at their age, their gender, their race, their income. And then once you kind of have an idea of who that is, then you're, you're going to go a little deeper and you're going to look at their interest. They're going to, you're going to think about where you find these people. A good example is there was a, a nonprofit that was trying to get money and they happened to be at a meeting and it was a food bank is what their nonprofit was. And they were at a meeting and, and it was a, a meeting with all the local food banks. And the presenter said, we've done this research for you. And your ideal donor, the people that donate to the food banks locally are older women, 60 and over, and they attend church regularly. Well, when the executive director put that to use, she started thinking, well, where do you hang out? Where where are you going to find these people? And it dawned on her, the women's groups at churches. And so she began contacting those people and getting speaking engagements. And she said they were handing her money because it was a cause that, that they knew and that they enjoyed. Yeah, definitely. I think it's so important. So I have a marketing background, a business background. So everything automatically goes into to like the marketing brain. I'm like, your ideal donor, who is your audience? And asking yourself the right questions for who your audience is, which is what I call it. You know, and you don't, there's just certain things that don't necessarily make sense. I say like, if you're looking, if you're looking to get pets adopted and you're looking for funds for that, you're probably not going to find it for first year college students. So maybe don't be attending college events. It might not be here. That might not be your audience. That's okay. So it's just important to know like where, where are they spending time? These people that share these common interests that are passionate about the same things and how that, that important, you know, finding your ideal donor and, and narrowing that down, what they like to do, what else they spend money on, how that applies to marketing later on when we are looking at your step seven fundraising and marketing systems. Right. That process is very different from the management process. And there's things that IRS requires you to have when you're fundraising. And so that's what that step really deals with. Again, this is probably not a sexy part and it's not something you're going to enjoy doing. I didn't enjoy doing it, but it's necessary. And I always like to preface the first year is really hard. (laughs) It's a lot of this setup. The setup is really tedious, but it's definitely a rewarding thing to do at the, towards the end. Right. And when you 
understand you're working towards some kind of goal, I think it helps to, you don't feel like this is just never ending. But some of the policies to consider in fundraising would be um, your donor recognition policy. You know, how are you going to recognize particular donors? What monetary threshold for each level? Because you want to make sure you're treating donors the same. So a $25 donation is probably not going to get recognized the same as a $10,000 donation. And so you need to kind of figure out how you want that to look. And as a reminder to everyone listening, do thank your donors, please. Even if yes. <laughs> even if they're just donating $1, I, I know it sounds wild, but people don't like to give up their money. So it's really nice. Just even if it's a thank you email, if it's like a generic thing that you put together, even for smaller donations, do take the time um, to thank them, make them feel special, um, especially if you want them to come back and donate again, perhaps when it's another dollar or more. Hopefully with a couple more zeros at the end, you want to to give that appreciation. Yeah, I, I have a, a great story. I was working at, for a nonprofit and it was one of those times I was having to, at Christmas time, I was having to go through the mail. And we got a check for a penny, one penny. Well, all right. Well, your first tendency is, why are they mad with us, you know? And so, and so I, I passed it on to my supervisor. I said, yeah, this is just a little strange. And he wound up calling the donor and talking to her and what happened was she had lived close by the nonprofit. She thought it was a great cause. She was on a fixed income, and that was what she had left over at the end of the month, that penny. And so when he came back, I mean, it really touched me because, you know, if you think about every donor being that way, every donor is giving up something for your cause. And so, um, you know, that last penny, she thought so much of us to give away her last penny. Oh, that's amazing. And I can't even imagine during the holidays, I would have just cried. <laughs> oh, yeah, I did. <laughs> so another policies would be your confidentiality policy. How are you going to handle donor information? Because there are credit card numbers and social security numbers have to be locked up or stored somehow so that people can't get to them. And then there are statements that you're going to want to go ahead and write out so that you can just copy and paste where you need to. So there's a solicitation disclosure statement that the IRS requires you to put on any of your solicitations. Um, there's a direct mail disclaimer. There's a language for acknowledgement letter and receipt. I mean, there. whenever you write those thank you letters, there is very specific wording that the IRS requires to be in there somewhere. And so you have to know what that is. If you have a special event, that letter, an acknowledgement letter has to be different from just a regular thank you letter. Because if they got any kind of goods or service, like a meal in exchange for the ticket price, you have to deduct the meal price and anything over that is um, tax deductible. So you've got to know that kind of thing. And then um, you should have a, a code of ethics and standards. You should have gifts of personal property policy. We call that in-kind. 
And there have been some crazy stories for that one. I just want to share my wildest one I've seen. No names will be named. There was an appliance that was gifted. And then apparently several years later, it was requested back as the person just wanted their appliance back. They still love the nonprofit that they had apparently donated it to, but there was no policy in place, right? So so that had, that had to be a conversation. You know, do we give this appliance back that we've had for several years? Because that's, you know, the polite and right thing to do. But if they would have had that policy in place, they would have, you know, or if they would have done anything with that appliance or if it had broken, they would have, they could have been held responsible, right? So so important to have those policies in place. They seem very tedious to do in the beginning. And some might seem like, well, why do we have to do this? But it's very much the same reason that there's a do not stop with your hand sticker on a chainsaw, things that should make sense, but just put it there anyways, just in case. Yeah. Well, and, you know, cars, I've seen people get into trouble over cars too. They accept this car only to find out it has major things wrong with it and the person that donated didn't necessarily know at the time I mean that's kind of one of the risks that you take whenever you you get a used car but then you're in that dilemma of you know it's going to take more to fix this car than it's worth and so now what do we do and how do we handle this because if the donor writes this off on their taxes at that price that's really not fair market value now. So it, it, it gets really sticky. So Yep. You've been warned, listeners. You've been warned. <laughs> so these marketing systems that are also part of step seven, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, what kind of marketing systems you create, what you recommend? Well, you absolutely need an email service provider. I did like MailChimp up until about May of this year. Because at that point, they were doing 2,000 emails for free, and you you were able to create multiple lists. Well, in May, they changed their, their terms for free. And so I was using MailChimp, and I started to look to see what else was out there. And I found MailerLite, and I, I'm liking MailerLite right now. It's free up to 1,000 emails. But when you're starting out, that's still plenty of room to grow. But an email system is definitely something because I say it over and over and over. Your funding is in your email list or your donor list. Definitely. So, yes, as a reminder, there are a lot of hosting platforms for your website as well that will in the beginning or even depending on the sites themselves. I'm going to use Wix as an example. When you have a certain service with them, they provide you that the backend email services such as something comparable to MailChimp where you're able to create instant email replies to someone, for example, sending you something on your contact us page, it would send them a thank you email automatically, you can set those things up, up to a certain amount, which is really great when you're starting off and you just you're, it's it's a dream to imagine 100 people reaching out to you. Like, that's a great place to start. So we're talking about, you know, reaching out to people, about setting up your email, what marketing is going to look like. And we move on to step eight, web and social. Y'all, this is when it, start getting, it starts to get fun, at least for me anyway. Oh, yeah. It's absolutely the funnest part. And so, yeah, now, now you get to 
set up your website and that's a whole lot of fun. It's a lot of work, can be a lot of work, but your website should be your hub on the internet. Everything you do should be pointing back to your website. And so you want to make sure that you really get that down and get it looking really, really, really well. And there's really some great and free things out there that you can go ahead and do to start out. And just keep in mind, this is probably not going to be a long-term solution, but it will be really good for right now to get that website out there into the world. And so I like WordPress. I started out, though, even in my business, I started out with a Wix site. So, hey, and it was a free site. Starters. <laughs> I know it was a free site. I paid what 10 bucks for a domain and, um, life was good. So I don't knock Wix. I know there's a lot of web developers out there that say Wix kind of, uh, squashes SEO. I have no idea. I'm not a web developer. <laughs> so I, I couldn't vouch for that. Um, but I do like WordPress because there's just so much more I can do with WordPress, all the widgets. I mean, you can go crazy <laughs> with it, with everything. Yes. And for me, I have some background in web development, so it's not that hard for me to do. I know a little bit of HTML, so it's not that difficult for me. Some people, though, it, it freaks them out. So if you're one of those people, don't do that. Do what's, what makes you comfortable. And while we're throwing websites out there too, Catch a Fire is a really good place too where you can get professional people to volunteer their time. So the organization goes in and puts in their proposal for what they want done. And it can be any anywhere from management to marketing to strategic plans. I mean, it just goes on and on. That's another good place to find some qualified people to help out. And then for social, I know everyone's go-to is usually Facebook. Is that your recommendation? I do. And there's a very specific reason why Facebook. I was just looking at Facebook demographics. Facebook users, they're 43% female and 57% male. That's actually changed in the last few years because it used to be primarily female. But what really gets me is their age demographics, which 62% of online seniors are aged 65 plus, and 72% are between the ages of 50 and 64. There's also over a billion users on Facebook. So the general donor is aged 50 and over. So I chose Facebook simply because that's where you're going to find the general donor. Now, once you, going back to the ideal donor, once you refine that and you really understand who that person is, there may be another platform that's geared more towards your ideal donor. By all means, go there. But I think to start out, Facebook is really the place to start. And I recommend just getting one platform. Don't decide you want to do uh, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn and uh, any other ones that you're thinking of because you're going to get overwhelmed really quickly. Do one, do it well, and understand 
who your donor is before you start branching out. Yes. And on that note, I always like to say that while you're working on what your handle is going to be, you know, the name everyone else sees your organization by, do go ahead and get them on the remaining platforms that you see yourself using in the future. Otherwise, you might find yourself having to private message people later like, hey, that happens to be my organization's name. Would you mind giving it up? Which is not likely to happen for you. And the policies surrounding handles tend to be a bit... mm, interesting and a bit of an uphill battle. So with my background, I do always like to throw that little nugget out there. And then we're on to our last step, fundraising basics. So this is a big one everybody always wants to know about. Yes, because everyone needs funding. The first thing you're going to do, and it probably comes because I am, I'm huge on planning and goals, is you're going to come up with a fundraising plan. I find when you sit down and you figure out where you're going to find the funds, what your goals are. And I recommend three goals when you're doing a fundraising plan. And that is donor retention, donor attrition, and your fundraising money goal. So you're going to go through and you're going to set a goal and you set your goal based on your expenses, how much you're going to need to operate. And then from there, you will just go through and you're going to be very detailed. You're going to break it down. So what's the first activity that you're going to do? Is it going to be an appeal letter? Is it going to be an event? Later on, it might be grants. So you're just going to break it out into all the different ways to get income. And then you go in and you set a goal for each one of those activities. If you have grants as one of your goals, you're going to use the SMART format, specific, measurable, attainable, relative, and time-sensitive. And you're going to go through that that and, and write out your goal. And you're going to give it a dollar amount. You're going to say, you know, I, we want grants to raise X amount of money. We want our event to raise X amount of money. And then from there, you get even more detailed and and you kind of put out your milestones and what needs to happen to get there. And so that's a a first year fundraising plan. Yes. And I know you have a really amazing template for this as well. That's one of your blog posts. So we'll definitely link that up on the blog for anyone looking for information on that and for some help. Funding is so huge. Without it, your nonprofit is essentially at a standstill. So thank you for taking the time to create that template. You're welcome. And when you have a fundraising plan, you can be focused. It's not, oh, the fundraiser of the month, because I see so many nonprofits that get on this this event treadmill. And so a plan will really help keep you off that treadmill. It's going to give you um, a calendar so that you can see what quarters you're focused on what, you can move things around. So it is extremely helpful when you're thinking through your funding. Yes, and I like to throw out there as a reminder to everyone, you do need to register to be able to solicit. Yes, and you have to register in the state that you're going to solicit. So whatever state your nonprofit is registered in and every state that you are going to solicit. And if you are getting online donations, 
That means all 50 states. <laughs> Did we not mention that this is the fun part? Yeah. Do you have any words of advice for someone thinking of starting a nonprofit or someone right in the thick of it? Well, if you are thinking about starting the nonprofit, the number one thing that, that you really need to do is make sure no one else in the community is doing what you're thinking about or something similar. If you find organizations that are in the same cause, volunteer with them, especially if you haven't had any nonprofit experience, because if you volunteer behind the scenes, you will see the inner workings of a nonprofit and it'll be a whole lot clearer to you what you're getting into. If you're in the thick of it, I would say follow my nine steps. <laughs> Agreed. Find a direction that you're comfortable with and seek those people out that, that can help you. You don't have to yes. do it alone. And if you forgot any of these nine steps, even if you're right in the middle of it all, please do go back and take a look. So for more information, where can people connect with you? Facebook? I'm on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and then I have my website. And I know you have some exciting news. You have an upcoming book. Yes, this is actually, you are my premiere. This is the first time I've announced it. Ooh, so special. Thank you. I know. It's an exclusive. I am just finishing up the book. And so I'm looking at December, it being released into the wild. So I'm excited. And it's based on the nine steps. It goes into a whole lot more detail than the blog post. And the book is called, I Have My 501c3, Now What? Your Blueprint to Starting Your Nonprofit Without Being the Sole Funder. <laughs> yes. Oh, that just spoke to my soul. But right now there is a page that you can sign up to be notified as soon as it hits Amazon. Brilliant. Yes. And I will add that link to our show notes and our blog as well. So anyone that's listening in and is interested in this book can get to that landing page. We're also going to have those resources we mentioned, the template, the blog posts, you know, everything's going to be on there. So you can take these steps and get going. All you got to do is click through. So yes, thank you so much for taking the time. I'm so grateful to have your knowledge and expertise on with us today to be able to learn a little bit about your strategy and look into what it is that you do and what your recommendations are for those just starting out. Well, thank you. And, and thank you for having me on. This has been so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for listening to Founder Files. Be sure to follow us on all the social medias at Founder Files P.O.D. You can also learn more on our blog at www.walkingwithgiants.com forward slash founder files. We have some amazing interviews and incredible topics coming up. Be sure to subscribe. Subscribe.